You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Andrew Stolman, who is a psychology department at Occidental College and, of course, the author of this book here, Science Blind, Why Our Intuitive Theories About the World Are So Often Wrong. So, Andrew, I found this book really interesting, and I think probably one of the main points that you're making, and the one that I found really profound, is that we all kind of know that there is this conflict between our intuition and kind of a scientific understanding of the world. I think folks like Danny Kahneman have made a career out of explaining the the divergence here. But what most people don't realize is that when we become more educated, when we become more scientific, we don't really replace the intuitive view of things. We kind of write the scientific view on top of this intuitive view, and we don't completely eliminate the intuitive view. And so there remains this kind of conflict. Even with highly educated professional scientists, there is this tension between their intuitive view and the scientific view. The book really kind of digs into this tension. So what drew you to this this idea? What drew you to this insight? Was this originally the intent of your research? Did you stumble on this? By the way, you, you walk through, I think it's like nine or 10 different domains in which this this tension exists. Right. Actually, 12, six biological domains and six physical domains. And what drew me to this area is this is what I studied starting in graduate school, and I continue to study it. The area is known as conceptual development, which is a subfield of developmental psychology, cognitive development, where we focus on concepts and where those concepts come from, how they change over time with different kinds of input, firsthand experience, interacting with the world, as well as the things that other people tell you. And what this field has discovered is that there isn't just a theory of concepts. Every concept has its own story. And the concepts cohere into frameworks or theories that explain phenomena around us. So if you you want to understand the origin of our concept of life or our concept of motion or our concept of gravity. You really have to understand our whole theory of life, theory of motion, theory of gravity. There's an interrelated set of concepts that all work together to help us understand the different phenomena that we see around us because we have to explain it. We have to predict it, not necessarily in a formal technical sense like a scientist might, but motion is all around us, right? We have to react to motion. We set things into motion. Gravity affects every movement we make. So we have to understand how these things work. And we do so starting right in infancy. Infants seem to be born with an innate set of concepts, not a lot, but enough to give them solid expectations about the kinds of entities they're going to encounter and the kinds of events that are going to unfold around them. And then those innate concepts get elaborated as infants learn language and become part of their culture. And they get elaborated into theories. But the first theories we construct in infancy and in childhood are what the field terms intuitive theories to contrast with scientific theories. They're theories that suffice to provide us with interpretations and predictions and so forth. 
but they don't carve up the world in quite the same way that a scientist would. Because scientists have the benefit of controlled experiments, hundreds of experiments, a whole systematic program of research that has informed the way the scientist understands any given domain. And the child, on the other hand, is using their innate concepts enriched with their own experiences and what people have told them. That being said, our intuitive theories are pretty accurate. They don't get us into a lot of trouble. I mean, if they did, we wouldn't have formed them in the first place. But there are systematic differences between how we intuitively understand a domain of phenomena and how scientists understand it. And that was the topic of the book, was for several different domains to compare the intuitive theories we construct on our own with the elaborated theories of a scientist and show the disconnects and how that influences our reasoning and what kinds of input can lead to more accurate theories. Now, I think it was William James that said that we're born into a world of blooming confusion. I think that was his phrase. And in your book, you, you point out that, well, that's not really quite accurate. Infants fairly quickly reveal that they have these theories about how the world works, right? They, they understand what solid material is and they gravitate towards motion that looks like it's human or, or animal motion. So these theories that infants have, they're fairly well developed. And I think you argue that these innate theories or these intuitive theories are, are coherent, widespread, and robust. But you also cite Piaget, right? Piaget is kind of the, the founder of the area of psychology in which you, you operate. But he, he talks about how these innate theories develop What's that process before the scientific theories get inserted into or overwrite these intuitive theories? The intuitive theories, they emerge and develop in infancy and as young people. What's that maturation process like? Because if it's not a scientific learning process, is it a learning process that occurs through encountering the world, experimenting in, in the world, learning from the world? How does that work? Are the intuitive theories hardwired or are they sort of something that almost every person acquires through the kind of common shared experience that we have? Yeah, so you brought up lots of ideas that I want to address. So let's start with Piaget because I think that's a good starting point. Yeah, the field of conceptual development really owes its origins to Piaget and his colleagues. And they had a view of child development that still survives today in intro psych textbooks, but isn't really endorsed by the field anymore as a whole, which is that we go through a series of stages, stages where the logic of thought changes from prior to age one and then one to two, there's another shift and then another shift after that. And the idea was that when you are in one of these stages, you're able to understand some things, but not other things. And the flavor of the stage influences how you reason about everything. So for instance, there's a stage at which kids go through that's supposed to be egocentric. Mm -hmm. And that means that you think about everything from your own perspective. You have trouble putting yourself in other people's shoes and reading their minds, so to speak. But it also influences your own physical reasoning because you, you think about objects from the way that you interact with them as opposed to like their broader properties. And the reason why psychologists today don't believe in PJ's stage theories is that it looks like development is much more granular, much more domain-specific. So children progress in their understanding of different domains at different rates, depending on the kind of input they get. So Piaget underestimated their knowledge and understanding in some areas, and then he overestimated their knowledge and understanding in other areas. And that's because it's just one stage doesn't fit all. And you really have to think about it 
in terms of these distinct phenomena that kids are grappling with. But something that Piaget, like an inherent part of Piaget's theory that's still right, is this notion of qualitative shifts. So he argued that when a kid goes from one logic of thought to another, it's not just an increase in understanding, it's a, it's a shift in the very mechanisms of thought. And that seems to be true with the transition from intuitive theories to scientific theories. The intuitive theory has its own internal logic. It's a logic that gets set up by the innate concepts that we are born with, along with experiences that everybody's going to have just by being a human in the world. It doesn't matter you know, what culture you grow up in, objects fall when they're unsupported and objects have heat that they pass and they, they become heated in certain situations. And so we can all observe the same phenomena and we have a, a shared starting point and that sets us down the same path to form an intuitive theory. They're not identical across cultures because cultural input also shapes the theory. So what the adults in your culture tell you about that domain of phenomena kind of rounds out the edges of your theory. But the core of those theories is similar from one culture to another, one person to another, also one historical time period to another. When you look at how people used to think about, say, heat or matter or life in the historical record, like documents from the history of science, early theories resemble the theories of children today as they're grappling with these ideas. But these theories, they're very similar across cultures, but the scientific theory is qualitatively different. And to really understand how scientists are now comprehending the field, you have to reorganize your concepts, restructure your concepts. And that does result in a qualitative shift similar to you know, the kinds that Piaget had imagined. It's just they're all domain-specific and they don't happen at any necessary maturational stage. They happen in response to evidence, in response to experiences. I mean, the most common impetus for conceptual change is going to be formal education. Most conceptual changes, if they occur at all, will occur in the classroom, particularly the science classroom or the math classroom, because those are areas where we have the most trouble understanding like modern theories of the day. But sometimes they can be triggered by just experience, having the right kinds of experiences that challenge your theories that could happen even prior to school. One of the puzzling things, though, is if these intuitive theories are shared by pretty much all people across all cultures, all historical periods, then they must have some functionality, right? They must help you kind of navigate the world in some way. And so we would think that if they fail to do a good job of predicting, then we would have presumably evolved them in, in a slightly different way over time. But one of the things you point out is that the errors are, are more common in the conceptualization than in the perception, right? So if you think about this, whatever, impetus theory, if you ask people to articulate where they expect the ball to be, they're going to get it wrong. But if they were actually in a position where they had to catch the ball, they're more likely to get it right. So how does that make sense? Why would there be a mismatch between our perceptual understanding and our conceptual understanding? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we just have multiple systems, multiple tools for understanding the world, and they're responsive to different kinds of evidence. Is there less kind of selective pressure on the conceptual than there is on, on the perceptual, right? Because, I mean, if you're perceptually incorrect, you know, you're going to fail at whatever task you're undertaking. But if it's conceptually incorrect, it might not make a difference. Well, perception tends to be linked up more closely with action. So when it comes to, like, perceiving motion, we do it in response to motion coming towards us or, or us creating motion, like throwing balls, catching balls, avoiding 
vehicles, making sure we hold objects in, in the right way so they don't fall or tip. And a lot of that can happen without any thinking at all. There's just perceptual input that leads you to estimate mass and orientation and velocity without activating an explicit concept of velocity or, or more commonly speed. But when people put their mind explicitly to thinking about motion, then certain categories get triggered that aren't necessarily part of the perceptual system. So when we try to explain motion or reason about it deliberately, we're really concerned with like what causes motion. And from our point of view, there's a big distinction between whether something's at rest or something's moving. From a Newtonian framework, that's a, a false distinction. Everything's essentially moving. It's just different frames of reference. Like right now we're both moving with the rotation of the earth, but it feels as if we're sitting still, right? But because people make this distinction between rest and motion, something's got to create the motion and then they assume there's a force. And then there's this further question of like, well, if a force sets an object in motion, why doesn't it immediately stop moving after it's no longer in contact with whatever set it in motion? Like if you push an object, why does it keep moving? And so that leads to the assumption, well, the force must have been imparted to the object. So now it has an internal force, which has been labeled impetus historically and, and now in terms of the science education research. And people have kind of elaborated views of impetus. Once they posit the existence of an internal force, then they start thinking about when does this force dissipate? Does it dissipate on its own or does it dissipate in response to like gravity and friction? Can the force keep an object moving in a curved path or only along a straight path? How does impetus interact with gravity? All these ideas that are kind of conceptual elaborations of this basic question of like, what sets objects in motion? And all that happens outside of the perceptual system. It, perception and conception oftentimes operate distinctly. And that can be a potent source of error and learning. In experiments, people will be asked to predict the trajectory of an object set in motion. So like they see a ball rolling off a table and they have to draw the path the ball is going to take. And they'll often make one of two mistakes. One mistake is they think that if the ball is moving fast enough, for a moment after it's left the table, it will continue in a perfectly horizontal path before it starts to fall because its impetus is so strong it won't even be affected by gravity. This is the Wiley Coyote kind of misconception, like Wiley Coyote runs off the cliff without falling. Another error that, that's even more common is the idea that as it's falling, it will fall in a parabola because it both has impetus and it's affected by gravity, but eventually its impetus will be depleted and it will fall straight down. And that never happens. Objects fall in perfect parabolas all the way to the end. So they'll draw a path that has these straight components to it. And then if you show them an object that's falling as they had predicted by manipulating a video or creating an animation that falls the way they say it falls, it will look weird. Yeah. They will notice that their predictions are wrong, perceptually wrong. When you said this is true even for kids, right? There's some peculiarities that take a while for infants to, to learn, but infants almost right away will detect there's something funky going on, right? Yeah, our perceptual expectations are, are really well-tuned to how objects move. It's, it's our conceptual expectations that are not. But you can use one as a teaching tool to inform the other. But you also mentioned that if you give people access to a video game, and, and the video game is actually completely accurate in terms of how it depicts the physics of, of objects, Letting people play around with these things for an extended period of time doesn't seem to cure them of the erroneous intuitive 
beliefs. You think that giving people exposure to this tool, which would allow them to kind of test out these theories, would help them to figure out kind of where their theories are, are incorrect. You mentioned also that you could give people physics problems and they'll, they'll get the physics problems right, but it doesn't cure them of this faulty intuitive theory. Right. Perceptual input's only going to be helpful as a teaching tool if you show them that their predictions do not bear out in the real world. But if you show them objects moving as they actually do in the real world, people won't realize that their conceptual understanding of motion differs from what they're currently looking at. There was this movement in maybe the 80s and the 90s when computer games got more sophisticated that physics education researchers thought, let's use video games, which are motivating students like playing them as a way of teaching physics. We can create these micro worlds that instantiate Newton's laws and then they can interact with objects within the micro world and they should learn like F equals MA from their interactions. Or at least they can learn like what the right trajectories of objects are that they follow in parabolic paths. And you can sit students down and have them play these games for hours and hours and they'll never change their conceptual understanding of motion just from the games alone because it's no different than them interacting with objects in the real world. They've always been watching objects fall in perfectly parabolic paths. They've always been watching how force causes acceleration, but it, that hasn't changed their understanding because they're working with an impetus theory that doesn't allow for this kind of perceptual information to penetrate. The only way that you can really wrap your mind around a parabolic path is to let go of impetus. It's a fiction, it doesn't exist, that the way an object falls is a function of its velocity in combination with gravity, and that's it. There's no force acting on the object other than gravity. There has to be some additional intellectual work that goes on in addition to these kinds of firsthand experiences to make the firsthand experiences meaningful. Right, and you spent a lot of time in the book, parts I found super interesting were about how you can educate people, right, to have a more refined scientific conceptual understanding of the world. And the big debate that you highlight is this idea, should we view these preconceived intuitive beliefs as obstacles or potentially as, as resources that we can leverage, right? And as a teacher, I always try to convince people that the solution is, is intuitive at some level, but that, that often requires a bit of a stretch, right? So you have to kind of cherry pick the, the intuitions that you're leveraging when you try to get people closer to a more accurate understanding. How does that debate play out? Should we be thinking as educators of trying to sidestep these intuitive beliefs, or should we be trying to kind of create a bridge from these intuitive beliefs to the scientific understanding? I think the answer is going to be concept-specific. There's no one approach that's going to work for all concepts, because some concepts, scientific concepts, have precursors in our intuitive theories that are accurate, that the bridge between our intuitive idea and the scientific idea is legitimate and could be made. Other concepts Scientific concepts have no precursor within the intuitive theory and vice versa. There are intuitive ideas that have no scientific counterpart. So for instance, impetus is just wrong. There's no scientific counterpart to impetus because forces are interactions between objects. They're not properties of internal objects. So there's really no trying to get people to use impetus in a way that will help them learn Newtonian mechanics. On the other hand, there are some ideas that we understand intuitively that line up with Newtonian mechanics. So the, the idea of the normal force is a great example. The normal force is the force that a 
surface exerts on an object resting upon it. So when a book is sitting on a table, gravity is pulling the book down, but the table is pushing the book up. If the table weren't pushing the book up, gravity would pull it through the table. But because the book is not moving, students don't think there's any forces acting on the book at all. <laughs> They're very skeptical of this idea of a normal force. But you can convince them that the normal force is there by drawing their attention to other situations where you can feel the normal force. So for instance, if you put your hand on a spring and push down, the spring pushes back up on your hand. That's an instance of a normal force that they can feel that is analogous with the table pushing up on the book, but there's still a gap there. And so to bridge the gap, you can introduce them to intermediate cases. So what if you push down on a flexible piece of plastic and that kind of pushes back up? What if you push down on some foam that's even less flexible than the plastic? And eventually you can work your way from a spring to plastic to foam to a table. And that is recruiting an intuitive idea, at least a perceptual experience, that does work within a physical framework. The problem is just that you can't have an orthodoxy about the matter where you say, science is all intuitive, we just have to show how it's intuitive, or vice versa, science is all counterintuitive, we have to break students of their pre-instructional ideas and teach them a whole new set of ideas. The mapping is piecemeal, and you have to figure out, as a scientist, doing experiments, which mappings work and which mappings don't work. That approach that you, you articulated, I think it was John Clement, right, who came up with that right. in that domain. You actually discussed similar approaches in pretty much all of the, the different domains. How common is that as an instructional method? I don't know of very many physics classes where you'll actually be up there pushing against different surfaces instead, typically given a set of formulas and, and a bunch of rules and you're told to solve some problems and then you move on, right? And so the way in which we teach things like physics is is not built on these bridging cases. It's not about leveraging your intuitions, it's just about like saying, okay, just throw that out, start from scratch. Are there folks out there in the educational world that are trying to incorporate these approaches into pedagogy? Sure. Yeah, there's lots of people actively investigating pedagogy and different kinds of curricula for teaching the same concepts. A big problem with higher level science learning that would occur in high school and college is that it very quickly becomes quantitative. You learn equations and how to apply those equations to situations. And even if it's not, if there aren't numbers involved, there might be formal models and you memorize like the paths that take place within a, a known reaction, like the Krebs cycle or something. And students are very good at that kind of learning, right? Like they can learn equations, how to apply equations, how to plug numbers into them, how to memorize a model, memorize all the bones in the body, et cetera without affecting their qualitative understanding of the domain. That's the challenge. The intuitive theory provides us with qualitative understanding, not quantitative understanding. And oftentimes that like qualitative understanding is only broached in lower grades, elementary school, middle school, if science is taught at all. And I think that the instructors in the higher levels, high school and college, just assume the correct qualitative understanding is there. And that's why they focus on the quantitative understanding. Oftentimes, they don't even know that there could be a wrong qualitative understanding because they've spent so much time now with the scientific theory, they forget that they had to learn that theory and that there were intuitions prior to the scientific theory that interfered with their reasoning. So there's a lot of challenges in teaching science right. One of it's a concept-specific challenge of figuring out what's the right way to teach this concept or maybe this theory. But there's also challenges in terms of pedagogy of 
getting instructors to recognize that intuitive theories exist, what they're like, how they can be addressed. And you also mentioned at the beginning, there's this added challenge of the discovery that intuitive theories don't go away. So you could be an excellent science teacher that gets your students to perfectly understand a domain, both quantitatively and qualitatively, but the intuitive theory sticks around and will oftentimes be activated in an everyday situation the kind of situation where students have been using that theory prior to instruction. So the outcome of science education is typically schizophrenic. Students leave with scientific theory, assuming instruction went well, as well as their earlier intuitive theory. They don't even recognize that they are switching between the two theories, just depending on which cues trigger which theory. Yeah, I think you mentioned that even people who are professional scientists, they still walk around with this intuitive theory. And when you look at their brain activity, right, discovered that they're engaged in a process of inhibition. This reminds me of Shane Frederick's work, right, with the cognitive reflection tests. Where you are, you've always got to engage in this subconscious act of, of suppression. But when you put people under stress or you put them under some kind of cognitive load, this taxes their ability to suppress this underlying intuition. Is that an accurate description of that research? Yeah, definitely. Since the book was published, we've done research showing that cognitive reflection does facilitate scientific reasoning. So people who are better at reflecting on their own thinking are also better at deploying scientific reasoning in everyday situations, and they're more likely to learn from science instruction. Because science is one of these more reflective kinds of activities. And it if you have two theories that you're working with, an intuitive one and a scientific one, it makes sense to step outside of those theories and consider the differences between them and how one theory might be more appropriate mm. than the other. Intuitive theories are useful, though. It's, it's not, first of all, I don't think we can get rid of them, but I don't think we would want to get rid of them either because they provide us with oftentimes the same inference that a scientific theory would, just more quickly and with less cognitive effort. So you're saying that being aware of the intuitive theories is going to help you to be a better scientific thinker because you're aware of how it could potentially creep in. I mean, not just in terms of helping people to learn and teaching it, but also just kind of your own understanding of where you might go wrong. Right. So to flesh this idea out a little bit more, some of the experiments that show that even scientists hold the intuitive theories are ones where you ask them to make judgments within their domain, but as quickly as possible or when they're distracted, they're doing something else at the same time. So there was one study that was done with biologists where they sat down in front of a computer and they saw names of entities flash up on the screen and they had to just say whether it was alive or not alive. And two of the entities that were of most importance for the experiment were the names of animals and plants. And they found that scientists were less accurate for the plants, so they were more likely to say not alive for plants than for animals. And that when they were correct and they said a plant was alive, it took them demonstrably longer than to say that an animal was alive. And these are people whose job day in and day out is to research the properties of living things. So they know full well that plants are alive. If you show them an error they had made, you say, look, you, you said daffodils weren't alive. Do you really believe that? They would know it was an error, but they have this early way of thinking about life that ties life to motion. Things are alive if they move on their own in goal-directed ways, and plants don't seem to move on their own. It's just not possible to shake that idea. You can acquire a new idea, a new framework for understanding life that treats anything that engages in metabolism as alive. So that includes plants and also includes microorganisms, but you're holding that idea 
in your mind at the same mm-hmm. time you're holding this goal-directed motion idea and they can conflict. Well, because all this scientific knowledge is domain-specific and learning that impetus theory is incorrect and doesn't necessarily lead you to understand that motion theory of life is, is incorrect. And that's why you're somewhat skeptical of this idea of general critical thinking as a tool. A lot of us in education think, all right, let's give everybody critical thinking and, and that'll improve people's ability to understand things scientifically across the board. But you are presumably confident that understanding cognitive reflection or understanding overconfidence or understanding this difference between the intuitive and the scientific approach, understanding that should presumably help you to acquire the domain expertise more readily, right? Yeah. So the cognitive reflection test is a test that looks at your ability to solve brain teasers, basically. And people's ability to answer these brain teasers correctly is diagnostic of how well they reason about science and how well they learn science. That doesn't mean, though, that teaching cognitive reflection could serve as a substitute for teaching science. More of like an individual difference variable where we could tell ahead of time who's probably going to benefit the most from instruction, who's going to do well when they leave the classroom and they encounter this phenomenon in the real world. But to learn the science itself, it's got to be domain-specific instruction that makes contact with specific intuitions and builds an understanding of specific scientific concepts. So I think you mentioned that the ideal training for someone to get them to understand the scientific approach would be conceptually informed. And I think you, you say, you know, it has to explicitly challenge the beliefs, refine the beliefs, or elaborate on, on the beliefs, depending on the extent to which the intuitive beliefs line up or can be leveraged for the, for the scientific beliefs. What are some examples of doing that right and doing that wrong? Okay, so doing it wrong, there's lots of examples from like the physics literature because there's lots of things people have tried that don't work. So giving people problem sets is an example of doing it wrong. Four reasons we talked about earlier, problem sets are a way of practicing quantitative reasoning rather than qualitative reasoning. So you can do thousands of physics problems without changing your qualitative understanding of motion. Another way of doing it wrong is doing hands-on activities that are not framed appropriately, where the principles that you're trying to learn are being illustrated for you when you roll balls down ramps or drop balls and measure how quickly they fall and so forth. But if you don't know what those experiences are supposed to show, you'll just use your own intuitive theory to interpret what's going on and you won't change your qualitative understanding either. The good kind of instruction is instruction that is building a framework, a scientific framework that can make sense of your prior experiences, but also instruction that shows the differences between the scientific reasoning and the intuitive reasoning. You know, like the the bridging analogies, that instructional tool we talked about earlier that Clement devised is a great example. Another example was devised by Mickey Chi and her colleagues where they do something they call ontology training. Ontology is just a fancy word for like a broad concept. And they argue that there's this broad concept of an emergent process that can subsumes lots of specific concepts like traffic is an emergent process, the weather, evolution. There's lots of things where individual actors through their interactions yield some broader phenomenon. And so rather than just try to teach people like this is how weather works, What they do is they just talk about the properties of emergent systems on their own, that all the actors are acting, all the agents are acting at the same time simultaneously, and there's no clear beginning or end. 
and the system is trying to reach an equilibrium. And they introduce these general ideas before then showing, here's a bunch of specific examples of emergent processes that you might have thought were intentional processes, but in fact, they arise from all of these random collective interactions at a lower level. And so that's a case where it's not bridging that's being done in so much as avoiding the intuitive misconceptions, trying to put a framework into place, and then showing how all these intuitive ideas can be reinterpreted within this newfound scientific framework. So isn't that just about modifying our intuitions? I think about germ theory, right? Germ theory was counterintuitive at one point in our history, maybe in our development, but then it kind of becomes intuitive, right? So most people now, without any reflection at all, they'll come up with some kind of germ theory. It may not be an accurate one, but they'll have some view of the infectiousness of different things. And similarly, right, evolution. I mean, I think people, it's not an accurate scientific understanding of evolution, but, you know, I think people gravitate towards evolutionary explanations almost intuitively at this point. So mm -hmm. can our intuitions develop and, and can things that were once counterintuitive become intuitive? Well, you actually raise a good point with respect to the term intuitive. The reason why these pre-instructional theories are labeled intuitive is mostly to contrast with scientific theories. Mm -hmm. They also go by other labels, naive theories, folk theories, lay theories. I like the word intuitive because it doesn't have a pejorative connotation like a naive theory does. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess it's appropriate because it's our first theory. But usually the, the word intuitive means more like most easily accessed, ideas that are on the top of our head. And for experts and people who are well-practiced at a theory, those new ideas can become intuitive. They are at the top of our head. But it, it, it's a little weird to then say, like, <laughs> scientific theories can become intuitive theories, but we also still have our original intuitive theories. <laughs> you know, in the Kahneman literature, they talk about how intuition can be cultivated and it changes. It just changes more slowly than the kind of knowledge that's non-intuitive, right? It's more reflective. It's more scientific. But terminology aside, I do want to point out that sometimes the ease of access of a scientific idea can be illusory. So we can easily appeal to germs and know that germs are invisible and they can pass from an object to a person or a person to person without being seen and cause illness, etc. without really thinking about germs as microbes, as biological agents. In fact, I think that's how most people think about germs, more as toxins. But you really have to think about them as biological agents if you want to avoid them as effectively as possible, right? To be thinking about them in terms of their survival outside of the body and their ability to reproduce inside the body and steps you can take to thwart their reproduction. That changes how you understand mm -hmm. vaccines and how you understand other kinds of treatments. And the same thing goes for evolution. Like you might gravitate towards evolutionary explanations of a phenomenon, but really it's just about like, telling just so stories about how a particular trait or behavior could have been adaptive, could have been useful without thinking about evolution as a process of differential reproduction and differential survival. Because sometimes when you take that lens and thinking about evolution at a population level with selection pressures added, it precludes certain kinds of evolutionary just so stories because it they just couldn't work in terms of if, like the population dynamic or the environment or what we know about the genetic variability of certain traits or so forth. So there are aspects of scientific theories that might be easily accessed that don't bring along the machinery of the theory that might be needed for like the most appropriate reasoning. 
But I think one of your points is that there's really no substitute for formal scientific training, that ultimately that's the quickest way to get people to understand things. Obviously, if you supplement it with these other techniques, but you offer a bunch of examples of how you can very, very quickly get people up to speed in ways that they would find difficult to get up to speed through experience or through a self-directed approach. And I found this interesting just because that's not, in the world of machine learning, we believe that the best way to get up to speed is to just feed the algorithm an enormous amount of data, and then ultimately it will figure out what patterns it should be looking for. And we've moved away from this idea of expert systems where we program them. But when it comes to humans, I think your argument is that we need to take the shortcut and actually provide formal scientific instruction. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) There's no way around the expert systems approach, the formal tutoring of the correct ideas, because when you are immersed in the experience of the domain, you code it the wrong ways. You code it in terms of your intuitive theories. And those codes are inherited from like our innate concepts and early childhood experiences. You don't discover scientific concepts just from the data themselves. That takes hundreds of years in some cases through like systematic controlled observations and experiments by a community of scientists. So it's absurd to expect that children, if we just expose them to the right experiences, will develop Newton's theories on their own. It took Newton, Newton was standing on the shoulders of giants in order to develop his theory. And it was within Newton's lifetime, it was decades of research that led to his theories. Now, you cite some examples of science blindness in popular culture. You talk about vaccine resistance, kind of anti-vaxxers and so forth. And so you highlight that this is a real threat, right? So even though our intuitive beliefs allow us to kind of get by, they can get in the way of our thriving. There are a lot of people that are just very condescending towards people who are anti-science. And I think you, you have a more subtle approach and you argue that this is to be expected, right? We should expect that people are going to be resistant to scientific approaches because science doesn't really improve our knowledge, but rather complicates it. And it's more demanding. Do you see this anti-scientific approach as something that is a real phenomenon? I mean, is it something, certainly in the popular press, we would like to believe that anti-scientific approaches are on the rise. I think that might be a bit of alarmism, but is there an intractable amount of resistance to science that will never be overcome? (laughs) Yeah, that's the pessimistic takeaway, I think, from the intuitive theories literature, which is that every generation is going to reinvent the same intuitive theories. And those intuitive theories are more compatible with anti-scientific attitudes than scientific attitudes in many cases. Yeah, the notion of a vaccine makes no sense on how we understand health and well-being intuitively. And the notion that species have evolved is incompatible with our understanding of the functional properties of organisms, which look as if they were designed. Like flat earth conspiracy theorists are on the rise, but it's not as if all children don't start out as flat earth theorists. It's the obvious thing to infer from just living on the the planet that the earth is flat because the ground around us appears to be flat. And when you drop objects, they fall down. So Mm -hmm. how could there be an underside to this thing I'm living on? Gravity would just pull anything off. So children reliably develop a flat earth understanding of the planet that has to then be reshaped into a spherical understanding. But as you note, as you mentioned, what happens is that scientific knowledge complicates our understanding. It doesn't change it all at once forever. So even though 
we will develop a spherical model of the earth, we'll still hold these notions of a flat earth in the recesses of our mind, given our experience navigating a flat ground. So they're very easily triggered. And for people that are conspiratorial in their thinking, who are willing to entertain the thought that authorities are deceiving them and that science is just another theory, those are the kinds of people that will gravitate to the more fringe anti-scientific ideas. Then there's also just mainstream anti-science, which at this point is vaccine skepticism, but forever it's included creationism opposed to accepting evolution. So it's, it's hard to say that anti-science as a whole is on the rise because people's acceptance of evolution has certainly grown in recent years. I don't know if they understand evolution, but poll after poll has shown that endorsement of creationism is dropping and acceptance of evolution is rising. But there's just other ideas, like a spherical Earth idea that seem to be accepted by the whole population. Now we see pockets of the population not accepting that idea. So it's just going to be dynamically changing, which intuitive ideas gain traction in certain social circles. What I find interesting is, though, is that even though more and more people are willing to accept evolution, their understanding of it is an essentialist one. It's one that is kind of Lamarckian, right? So those versions of evolutionary theory that kind of are more in alignment with our intuitions are the ones that people tend to accept. Oh, definitely. What's changed over time is not the acceptance of a purely naturalistic understanding of evolution. It's theistic evolution. That's taking the place of pure creationism. So people are willing to accept evolution, but they think that there's some divine being that has its hand in the process. And that's not scientific. I mean, you can't make predictions <laughs> if there's a supernatural agency involved. It's better than nothing because people who endorse theistic evolution aren't then opposed to teaching evolution in the schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you also mentioned that city kids are at a somewhat of a disadvantage compared to rural kids when it comes to learning a bit about nature. Right. I mean, the, the human species is moving towards the cities and away from rural areas. And that means contact with nature is going to be rarer. And that kind of contact has educational benefits. It enriches our folk theories of biology or provides a database upon which our theories can be built that's going to be absent if your only experience with nature is through a television screen or at the zoo. Yeah. So you use this analogy of Otto Neurath's boat. I love this analogy, right? Because it's sort of saying you set out to sea in a boat and then you realize that you're in kind of a deficient boat and then you have to fix it on the fly. And you don't really have the option of going back to shore and getting yourself a completely new boat. And that's that's a story of of how we navigate the world, right? I mean, we have this faulty boat. It's not the one we would have designed if we had the chance and we got to somehow tinker with it, right? Yeah, I think that is a great analogy because it, it emphasizes two things. One is that the boat represents what we are innately endowed with. The concepts we come into the world with are ones that have proven useful over time, but there's a difference between utility and truth. But we can't change that, right? We have the concepts we're born with and also the concepts that are provided by early experience. And we have to work with those concepts. And then the way to work with them has got to be a gradual process. Since we're in the middle of the ocean on this boat, we can't just take it fully apart and reconstruct it as we would like. We have to take it apart bit by bit and do the reconstruction bit by bit. And that takes clever pedagogy and clever kinds of experiences. First of all, to motivate people to tinker with their boat at all. Mm -hmm, right. <laughs> but second, to do the tinkering in a way 
that will allow people to maintain their sense of understanding and not just abandon hope and just stick full heartedly with their intuitive theories. Now, at the end of the book, you mentioned that when you first started teaching, you realized that it was a little bit harder than, than you originally thought. And you said that the illusion of explanatory depth was sort of biting you, right? Which is this idea that we think we understand things better than we do. And we think we have the ability to articulate our understanding better than we do. And you limited your book to only a subset of the domains in which we would fall prey to this illusion. You only talk about a subset of domains where our intuitive beliefs are steering us wrong. But how do you overcome that? I mean, do you have to actually go through the process of articulating and explaining and teaching to kind of become aware of this illusion and this overconfidence? Right. Yeah. So the illusion of explanatory depth is the phenomenology that you think you know more than you actually do. And it's partially spurred by the fact that we have these intuitive theories that are providing us with a sense of understanding that just doesn't work in all situations and has big gaps and big holes that we don't recognize until we're forced to provide explanations. I don't know if there's research on this, but I would guess that people who are forced to explain all the time as part of their job as teachers or writers or trainers at companies, they might recognize that there are gaps in their understanding. They're more likely to recognize. But on the other hand, it's possible that, that we just always stumble on this illusion from one domain to the next, one concept to the next, that it's hard to accept that this is just a general function of cognition. We think, oh yeah, this one area I thought I understood, but in fact I don't. But there's other areas I do actually understand. <laughs> it's probably the case that all areas involve this illusion. And it's hard to accept because we don't want to think of ourselves as sort of navigating the world with these big holes in our knowledge. But that's the implication from cognitive science. Yeah, so you could actually be very, very aware of the faults in your faulty reasoning in, in the domain in which you're an expert and then be completely oblivious to the your ignorance or overconfidence in, in very different domains. Mm-hmm. Andrew, this has been fascinating. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's a great book. Do you have a follow-up book in mind? I'm working on a book right now, tentatively titled The Creation of Imagination, How We Learn to Contemplate Novel Possibilities and Alternate Realities. And that's about imagination and the fact that it's improved by education. It's not stilted by education. And in fact, children's imaginations are somewhat impoverished. And that's the main thesis. That's actually contrary to, I think, Alison Gopnik and others who would argue that education is basically the job of extinguishing curiosity and extinguishing creativity and, and just forcing people into these very narrow buckets. So what would you say to them? How do you support this idea? Is it only certain types of education that open up these creative possibilities? Knowledge is always going to be constraining. When you know something, you're going to interpret the world from that perspective. That's what we've been talking about with intuitive theories, right? But the solution isn't then to just be ignorant <laughs> and get rid of your knowledge or never give people knowledge. It's to gain more knowledge. So you have multiple perspectives from which to contemplate the situation. So there are like isolated experiments that might suggest that teaching people something has harmful effects on their creativity. But the large body of knowledge suggests that actually people get more creative and think of better possibilities as they acquire more knowledge. Do they need to acquire knowledge in multiple domains to be? So a lot of times people talk about creativity as essentially a bridging function, right? Where you take knowledge from one domain and you kind of map it over into another domain or you notice inconsistencies across different approaches or different domains. Is there a trade-off between knowledge depth and, and knowledge breadth? 
Yeah, possibly. I mean, a lot of the generation of new possibilities does happen through an explicit process of trying to think of new possibilities, which could be done through these cross-domain comparisons, explicitly trying to make analogies between two things you know. If you know one very well and another thing less well, you can make connections between them and import some of your understanding from one domain to another. That's a great way of increasing understanding. And you can't do that if all your knowledge is superficial. So it's like, the more you know, the better. Breadth is great, but depth is even better. (laughs) Well, okay, Andrew, we'll have to have you back when you get that book out, because that's a book that I'm definitely going to be looking forward to, and I'm going to pre-order on Amazon as soon as I can. Science (laughs) Blind, why are intuitive theories about the world are so often wrong? Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.